For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host, Mike Madison. Our hope is to provide you with short episodes that help you learn about drug prohibition um, and its harms and possible solutions, as well as invite you to change your mind in support of solutions that reduce harm and increase thriving, not just for people who use drugs and their families, but for all of us um, who don't. So today what we want to do is uh, Mike and I are going to share a little more about how we changed our minds on this. Both of us were supporters of a criminal approach to drugs for a good portion of our lives and to our adult lives. Um, Each of us came to this uh, conclusion in different ways, and we kind of wanted to walk through uh, our journeys to change our minds in a little bit more detail in a hope that that kind of helps to shape um, why somebody who's supporting a criminal approach what are some of the things that um that kind of put the uh, shook the foundation a little bit so we started considering uh other paths and what are some of our thoughts is that we've had along the way so um mike tell us about this journey for you how did you end up changing your mind from um somebody who was a staunch supporter of criminalizing drugs to now somebody who's supportive of a legal regulated market. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I was uh, raised in a middle class family, two parents. I mean, just solidly middle class, not really upper, not lower, just you know, kind of to me, the typical American uh, upbringing drank in high school and and I was raised Christian in the Episcopal church. My grandfather was a pastor. Um, Got to college and, and drank plenty. I smoked marijuana a few times. Never, ever bought it. But you know what I mean? I, I kind of, I didn't really judge anybody that did that kind of thing. But I also was very conservative in law and order and realizing, you know, you can see the the ills that drug co- drugs cause. I would see some friends that might have slipped into addiction and ruined their lives at times. But I didn't really think about it really deeply. And I didn't really think about Anybody who went to jail, it, it just became kind of accepted. Uh, people go to jail for breaking the law. You know, you're kind of raised that way. You know, it's okay to have a respect for law enforcement, and you just kind of assume. You, you buy into that if you don't do the crime, you know, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And so I was perfectly fine with that. I probably didn't have a whole, a well-defined sense of compassion in my early 20s and those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. too. I I don't think I was a jerk, but, you know, I just didn't think deeply about these issues. I got into the restaurant business and actually managed big bars and sold a lot of alcohol. But one of the things that I first started noticing was that I would have people come. I hired a lot of people. And so people would come into me to work, and many of them were very sheepish. I could tell there were some very sharp people, and they were coming to me for jobs that were, you know, essentially basically minimum wage jobs. And I would get into kind of talking uh, talking to them about what had happened, and they might kind of, well, I've got a record, you know, or I've got a felony. It's just been tough to get a job, something along those lines. And I started, I started kind of just seeing that these people that I saw all this potential in them, 
the jobs I was hiring from, I, did, I couldn't put them as CEO or something. You know what? I didn't have any mm-hmm. high power positions. I thought they, I would just have to hire them for what I had for them, but I could see that they were not realizing their potential. These weren't bad people. They weren't drug addicts, but they had gotten in trouble before and been arrested on some kind of a drug crime. And now they just were having doors shut in their face when they went to go look for positions that might be more aligned with, uh, I mean, and this was everything from, you know, they might want to just go become a mechanic at a dealership where they, you can make some good money. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do those things. That was kind of one of the first things. Um, I also worked for a charity, and what our job was, every Friday morning I would go, and they had a fleet of about 10 trucks, and we would run them around town and all of the grocery stores that are, you know, their food is reaching the sell-by date. Um, they would give them to us. We would load up trucks and take these things back to a place, and they would go out to all the shelters, uh, a battered women's shelters, uh, rehabs, uh, even some prisons got food from us. Every Friday, I, somebody would ride with me because we'd have, I mean, sometimes we'd collect over a ton of food. So I'd have all these boxes. So they would give me somebody to ride with me. I didn't know these people at all, but we had four hours in the truck. And I'm not a guy that sits in silence very often. I'm interested to talk to people, and I really kind of like people's stories. And so I did this for five years. So I don't know how many different people I rode through. What would happen is the shelters would send their people as volunteers to work with us in exchange for getting this food. You know, that's, So that's where these people came from. They were from shelters. They were from rehabs. And I would get into the truck with them, and we'd take off. We'd be gone for four to five hours, and we would just start talking about things. And it was always really interesting to me to realize by the end of almost every single ride, even if I didn't particularly like the person, I mean, sometimes the people were kind of obnoxious, a little over the top, definitely people I wouldn't hang out with is how I felt about them getting into the truck. After four or five hours, almost every single time I realized they are exactly like me. You know, they, I I would ask them, well, what do you want to do with your life? Because obviously if they're in this rehab, their life has been derailed to some degree, but they would have these dreams of what they want to do. Some of them would have business ideas. They would tell me about, you know, children they're trying to reconnect with because they've been out of their lives for a few years. And and it, it just kind of hit me that these are not throwaway people that are being incarcerated on drug crimes. These are people who need to get their life back on track and reunite with people and, um, and and re-enter society, but the doors are being shut in their face because I would talk to them too. You know, what are you going to do? Well, I want to do this, but now that I've got this this thing on my record, I just, I just can't find a job doing this. And I realized the struggle that they were having was largely just because they've been arrested. Now, that's why I kind of knocked myself out at the very beginning and said I smoked some marijuana in the early in my days, not very often, but I, I knew a lot of people that were very productive that had they just had gotten away with it. Essentially, they'd never been caught. And so I began to realize, oh, the difference is not this substance that just, you know, somebody who's used drugs is this terrible person. The difference between these guys I was riding with that have got these criminal records or been forced into rehabs that are doing, working with me, and friends that are now doctors and attorneys and all these other things, is that these guys got caught, and they didn't have the money to defend themselves. And so their whole lives have been derailed by this war on drugs, not because of the substance, because my friends had done the exact same substance. But they went on to lead productive lives. Then even, you know, there's some criminal justice issues to that, too. Some of my friends did get caught, but they were well-connected. They had parents who could get them out of trouble, and so their lives were minimally affected by something like that. But I realized particularly the people who can't access the system, don't have access to the, you know, to the levers of power at all, are the ones that are really railroaded in the system. So bottom line, I just started looking at it and realizing the carnage that it placed in these people's lives, people that I came to understand 
were really good people, just like us. It's just that they've been saddled with being on the wrong end of of the system the way it's set up right now. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I think that for for me too, it was kind of this humanizing of people. Um, who are using drugs and people uh, struggling with addiction that really helped me kind of see a different way. And I think a a good point, I think, to make to that is I I think most people, when they look at people they know who are using drugs or who are struggling with addiction, they can see the humanity. Uh, So we kind of have this this kind of two-tiered approach to drugs and addiction. We kind of say all the bad people out there, which consists of people we don't know, but then I have this this kind of fluke in my own family or somebody that I love or a friend of mine from college or the friend that you grew up with or whatever, where you said, well, they're a good person who just got caught up in a bad thing. But the majority of people, I'm sure, who are being, you know, criminalized for this, they're a different kind of person. So right. it's kind of like we we don't want the drug war waged at us or exactly. anybody that we love, but but we have a really hard time connecting with these people over there are the same kind of people as the people that you love. And even if addiction uh, has destroyed your family, because it very much affects families, not just the individual who's struggling with it, um, it it still is not necessarily something where you look at and you go, um, they're just a terrible person. I think most people that I've talked to say, what I see now in their life is terrible. This isn't who they were. This isn't who they really are right. outside of this addiction. Um, so we can kind of see it for ourselves and people we love, but we have a really hard time seeing it kind of in, in other people. And that's, I think, when we begin to see it in other people and when we make that connection, like your experience has made for you and my experience has made for me, that, wait a second, all people are humans. They're all using for different reasons. They're all struggling with different things. We all have coping mechanisms that are unhealthy that we go to. I love to snack. That's kind of my go-to when I'm stressed out. Uh, But nobody's putting me in jail for that. I I can do that and nobody's going to stop me, even though it's not healthy. Um, And, you know, but we we all have these things. and drug use and addiction has a much higher cost to it, especially in the current market system of how it plays out yeah. um, in harms. And a lot of that even is driven by drug prohibition. A lot of the experience of addiction that we have currently with all the harms of you know stealing and um, all these other things that people are being driven to by the cost of street drugs and all of that sort of thing um, is a really harmful thing. So I uh, also grew up in a very conservative home and... Um, wonderful Christian home and never had any interest in using drugs at all. Never smoked a cigarette. Uh, I don't drink alcohol. I, I tried to like it for a number of years, just uh, off and on. I never did. And I've given up on that. And I, <laughs> Quit, what a quitter. <laughs> I've decided I just, I just don't care enough to, uh, to try to like something I just don't like. Um, so I was just never interested in that. None of my friends ever did drugs that I ever knew of um, that was just totally unrelated to my life. Through high school, through college, into adulthood, that has never been part of the the scene that I have been part of. So uh, my life has just been totally removed from any kind of 
did you feel like when you're going through the college years and stuff like that, when you saw, because there's always groups, you know, within high schools or colleges or friend groups, you know, there's the group that, you know, the stoners, the burners. Did you look down on them at that time? Did you look at them like, oh, my gosh, look what the, you know, they are the lesser people. Or did you just not ignore, just ignore them? Or did you just not know of those kinds of groups? You know Basically, what I mean? Basically, I didn't know of those kinds of groups. So even within your school, you didn't, know, you didn't have the burner No, well, group. I was homeschooled. I was homeschooled, <laughs> kindergarten through high school. So. I I was never part of a, a, a larger school where there was those kind of different kinds of groups. Um, all of my friends, most of them were from our church. We hung out with, you know, kids in our youth group at church. And um, even in high school, I went to a, a smaller Christian liberal arts um, college, I mean, in college. Um, and I'm sure that people, obviously people in in my college, or, you know, 5,000 students or whatever, when I was there, I'm sure there were people using drugs, but I never saw it. And I never knew anybody if they were using drugs. I never knew anything about it, never suspected anything about it. Um, so it's still just like totally unrelated to me. I've never seen marijuana in real life, like ever. To I know that to this day, wow. to this day, I, I, which I know is hard for people to understand. How is this conceivably possible that somebody has it? It has just never been part of my life at all not even i've never been offered drugs I've, i mean i just well, see, i've been this in is this interesting little, <laughs> because you're seeing two people bubble. while we might have kind of philosophically and kind of the middle class american experience yeah. have that and but you know i came from public school and then i went to a public union you know, state university where and then i went into the bar business where i was managing nightclubs so i mean i saw all this stuff all over the place you know and i was never i've never tried cocaine never done any, i smoked marijuana you know several times in college never bought it it was just if i was there but i saw that all over the place so that's that's interesting the different paths cuz i i was around it all the time you know this was Back in the 90s, there was still a lot of cocaine. I knew people who did cocaine, never tried it. I was scared of it. I thought I'd like it too much, you know. But it is interesting that <laughs> yeah. we definitely had different paths. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, um, so for me, I, it never came close to me either. So drug use itself didn't come close to me. And the criminalization of drug use didn't come close to me either. Because no one that I knew was getting arrested or, you know, I didn't know anybody with a, a family member in jail or anything like that. It was totally removed from me. But if you saw the news that they had busted, a, you know, they put the three mug shots on. These people were found with 100 pounds of marijuana. Can you remember how you felt about that? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, great. Bad thank, people. Yeah. Thank goodness yeah. we got them off the streets. Yeah. Yeah. yeah bad people. Um, and... and and I could see, I mean, I think all of us in, in many things that we believe every now and then we get a little something that, that kind of gives a little dissonance, a little tremor to that foundation. It wasn't that I didn't have those kinds of experiences of, uh, you know, seeing what I, this kind of uh, disdain for people um, is not always true. I did have those experiences. Um, I remember as a child uh, my dad would go and meet with a man who was a uh, chronic alcoholic, not in recovery. Um, and he would call our house. So we only had a landline then. Of course, I remember as a very young child answering the phone um, throughout multiple years of my childhood. And George would be on the other end, drunk, and would be asking for my dad. And I'd go find my dad. Uh, my dad many times went down to the local public library and met with him to try to help him. You know, what can we do? How can we help you get your life back on track? How can we help you deal with uh, deal with this? I never met George. I don't know what happened to him. 
but I just remember uh, for many years as I was growing up that every now and then I'd answer the phone and George would be on the other line. Um, he, to me, it seemed like he always called when he was drunk. So he was calling kind of at his lowest point um, to kind of reach out to my dad for help. So I, I, I could see my, my dad's compassion and my parents um, were compassionate people. And I remember hearing them talk one time when I was little about um, that one day when we were grown, they had this idea of opening up kind of a reentry house for people coming out of incarceration. That didn't connect to me at all because I, I didn't have, I didn't know anybody in jail. I didn't know why they would know yeah. or really care about anybody coming out of jail. Um, it didn't connect and they never really talked about it more than that. I just remember them telling me that one time uh, when I asked them, you know, what are you going to do when we're all gone? Um, I just remember thinking that's kind of a weird thing to do yeah um and so uh both my parents had passed away so they passed away before um my mom when I was 19 my dad when I was 23 both of them died of cancer um so they never had a chance to uh to realize that that dream but um so I kind of saw those growing up those kind of tremors um in wait m- my parents are humanizing people who are struggling but I'm having a hard time doing that myself. And I'm not really being challenged on that because all of, I just don't know anybody that can help humanize that for me. All my but, friends are kind of like me, not doing just, you know, doing all the, you know, quote unquote, right things. That's very interesting, though, in the path that you've ended up taking. That was a seed and you yeah. had no idea it was. You just didn't even really pay attention to it. Just kind of gave it almost no thought. Just, a, huh, that's interesting or whatever. I wonder why they do that. And then you were off to the next thing mentally. Yeah. But it was a seed that's been in there for a long time that probably, you know, it, it sprouted just enough when you get mm-hmm. to the rest of your story that, you know, made you a little bit more prone probably to accept something different because there's that little voice in your head that said well my parents seem to see some redemption in people mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah that's interesting yeah definitely so I, I really it came home to me when we became a foster family um, and we my husband and I decided we had always wanted to adopt ever since we had been married and through the course of events we decided to foster because we didn't really feel like we knew what role to um where how to pursue adoption so we thought we'll we'll just foster for a little while and and kind of see where that goes while we're figuring out this adoption thing um and so we started doing that never thought we would ever do that um it was very very difficult we did it for three and a half years um but one of the things that it uh did for me was bring me close to somebody who was struggling with addiction so um the second uh child that we fostered um I met his mom early on, so maybe a week after he came straight from the hospital from being born to us. So he had been removed for um, drug use while his mom was pregnant with him. Um, and that's common practice in Mississippi still to automatically remove children if their parents have been, if their mother has been using drugs while um, she was pregnant. How does that come out? Do they do a blood test at at the time of birth for that specific purpose or does it show up on a scan or how I actually don't know I've asked a number of people and I still have never been able to get a clear answer of you know are all babies drug tested or just some babies or how how does that happen were my boys tested when you know do you know in the within the foster system how many of the children you know if there's a percentage that 60 percent of the foster kids are actually end up in foster care because of the last stat that I saw just a couple of months ago for Mississippi is that 46% of kids in foster care are there for some sort of drug issue of their parents. Oh, so okay. it could be, you know, using drugs while they were pregnant. It could be that they tested positive for a substance, you know, at a 
court hearing or, you right. know, whatever it is, some way that um, it could be that, you know, addiction has destroyed their family and they're living in an unsafe environment. But it doesn't always mean that. It really can mean a positive drug test. Um, and depending on the judge, they can use a positive drug test as as proof of neglect rather than actually is there neglect. Right. You know, is yeah. there harm it's, happening it's in the an home? Or, yeah. yeah, it's kind of an automatic de- yeah. depending on how they see that. So, um, so I met her and I could just feel this resistance in me. So I pulled up to um, the parking lot at the local foster care office where we were meeting because they protect the privacy of uh, foster families. So you, you don't meet, you know, she doesn't come to my house. Right. Um, so I pulled up and I popped his car seat out um, and I was looking around. I didn't know what she looked like. I just figured somehow we'd figure out who each other was. Um, and this woman comes sprinting across the parking lot towards me, tears streaming down her face. Um, she doesn't say hi to me at all. She just is looking at her son and covers him with kisses. I'm still holding his little car seat carrier, um, talking to him, covering him with kisses. And in my heart, I'm feeling this struggle of what I'm seeing is love, but what I believe is a parent wouldn't love their child and still use drugs while they were right. pregnant. How, how can these two things be she must not care going about together? This kid. She can't care. But yeah. what I'm seeing is care and this kind of, oh, no, there's this clash of beliefs happening here. My belief is one thing. My experience is another. Um, so as I got to know her, I kept seeing those things. So she was able to get into treatment um, and was not prosecuted for her drug use, which does also happen sometimes. Uh, she was not prosecuted. She got into treatment um, and she would call me from treatment and she would say, can you put me on speakerphone so I can sing to my son? Um, and again, I had this clash of, oh, I don't want to believe this is real because kind of this whole framework of supporting, putting people in jail and taking away their kids and this whole thing is really, it hinges on that she is a bad person. But I'm just not seeing this. Well, yeah, and there's a lot of that where you would say, how could you possibly do that? You've got a child, for goodness sakes. You know, that that is the kind of the first thing that people think. I mean, still me today, I'll see people make, you know, a choice like that and say, oh, my gosh, how did you get involved with that? You've got little kids at home. Are you not thinking about them? But, you know, as we talk about in the rest of the series here. It's it's trauma that does it. It's not like they just decided, hey, I'm going to start being a party girl, you know, with yeah. a kid and ignore my kid. That's not what it is. Yeah, no. And I, and so I, I began to see there are two truths here. One is she does love her son. This is real. This isn't put on. She's not trying to, you know, make a, a show of something to impress me or anything like that. Over time, as I saw her with her son, it was very clear that she loves her son just as much as I love my three sons. This is a truth. The other truth is that she struggled with addiction and could not beat that addiction, even though she was so excited to be pregnant with her son. So that just was the last kind of this bomb on my foundation of supporting this criminality for people, because I could see that, Her addiction wasn't a result of that she didn't want to, you know, that she didn't want to be using. She didn't want to expose her son to those substances. This is not an issue of good versus bad or somebody who just doesn't care or, you know, she's just, you know, morally bankrupt or anything like that. She was a Christian like I am. um, And I just saw all of these similarities were almost exactly the same age. Um, as I got to know her more, I actually realized that our parents knew each other when we were very young, oh, although wow. we never knew each other um, because she was also homeschooled. Um, and that was just this kind of, you know, I, we try to keep our 
personal information private, but the longer that we got to know her, she was returned to his custody, um, or he was returned to her custody after just a month um, joining her in a special treatment program here in Mississippi that allows moms and babies to stay together to develop that bond while the mom is getting treatment. Um, And so I began to learn more and more about her, and we started to put together the pieces of, wait a second, I think our parents actually knew each other. And I just saw over and over again, she is someone like me. Uh, And that's really what destroyed my uh, support for criminality. I felt like there's so much destruction of this foundation of what I've always believed in uh, that I need to figure out a new foundation. It's a really stressful thing to change your mind on any issue you know you you kind of have this whole framework built up so you have if to you, admit you destroy that framework yeah, yeah now you're admitting you're wrong and now you have to figure out how to build this a new framework how how do i think about this how do i put together what i see happening in her life why was the addiction so hard to beat um and that kind of sent me on this journey of discovery of i need to understand what's happening because what's happening is happening to a lot of people how long did you have this child he was only with us for a month so this you've got this relationship and this understanding of this woman within about four and a half weeks is how this kind of, did, we, well we're st- still friends so that was three years ago so it was the beginning of that over the course of his being with us and then that continued relationship of you know her sending us pictures of him as he's been growing up and coming back to visit us and she works now full time um, in a uh, treatment facility for troubled youth. Um, so, yeah, just this really cool experience. Now, that doesn't happen for everybody. There's a lot of people for whom that kind of positive uh, life change, and she was an addict for many years, um, doesn't happen. But I begin to see, well, the only way it can happen is if she's not in jail for the next 10 years and her right. son separated from her and their family life totally destroyed and the bond severed and all of the trauma that comes from that. And now she's got a new baby and you realize that. And it sure would be nice if she could get a good job instead of a criminal right. record, which would keep her from having a good job to actually provide for this next human being you yeah. know, in this line. So. Yeah, yeah. And then you kind of start expanding that to, okay, if this is one person and we have you know now – almost every family in America is affected by addiction in some way. This is a lot of people that we're talking about that are either being met with a health response or being met with a criminal response. Um, She was very fortunate in that uh, she was not caught for the the criminal activity that, you know, she was engaged in using illegal drugs. Um, But most people are, her experience is kind of a unique one. Um, when when more people are met with the criminal justice response rather than the yeah. health response, yeah. So that's kind of how I began to change my mind. That that was three years ago. Um, well, you know, and that takes you to other things too. When you start to kind of open your eyes to that and realize, well, these really are good people. Maybe we're not doing this quite right. Then you start seeing the parallels to things. I mean, one of the biggest things to me was just the the duh moment of when when somebody points out to you, look how prohibition worked with alcohol and you study the prohibition of the 1920s and the catastrophe that it was. And the fact we reversed, you know, once you do that, to me, that was kind of the next step where I thought, okay, I already have some empathy for these people. I already realize we're, we're destroying their careers by locking them up. And then I start exploring the similarities to alcohol prohibition and going, oh, we already knew this was you know, mm-hmm. the prohibition doesn't work and we've already done this experiment. It was just terrible. And then you start saying, well, then why are we doing it exactly the same way again? Seeing the gang violence, seeing everything else. So it's kind of, mm-hmm. it was a, it's a stair step thing. You, 
it starts kind of on a humanitarian level for probably well, at least it did for me it sounds mm-hmm. like it did for you too then it becomes an intellectual level where you just start looking at the insanity of what we're doing right now and saying i mean almost put aside the compassion for these people even if you don't care about these people this does not work you know right. it's it's yeah. changed nothing yeah and i think that that's a was an important part for me as i came to to read about it was realizing i'm not trained in this i'm not a therapist i'm not a you know researcher um, my degree is in bible um you can understand what's happening just by being someone who can follow some logical conclusions right. and 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 basic economic principles that i that i learned through just reading newspaper articles of you know, like you're talking about, we, we've seen this happen with alcohol prohibition. It, it hasn't worked with drug prohibition because it can't work. Right. You cannot prohibit a substance and just rid it, rid the earth of it. Uh, it just doesn't work. As yeah. long as there's demand for it, which there always will be, you can, what we have to say, that that really is what criminalization it hinges on, that we can rid the earth of these if we just substances do a if we little just bit do more. harder. Yeah. And we've done harder and more and harder and more right. for decades, and it has been more and more people dying, more and more people, you know, their lives being destroyed. And so if people say, this is, you know, you're just too idealistic, you know, this is your whole lack of knowledge about, you know, personal experiences, drugs coming in, coming to bear here. You don't realize that this is just idealism. You think, you know, we can just... uh you know, regulate the drug market and everything will be fine. I've never said that everything will be fine. There will always be some harms, just like there is with alcohol. Human beings are involved. Right. Nothing's Human beings perfect. are involved. Yeah. Nothing is perfect. But I think the idealism rests on the side of prohibition. The idealism the idealism right. of that we can rid the earth of, of substances that can be mass produced in, you know, factories in Central and South America and around the world. Um, we it, it's It is ludicrous now to me to think, Wow, that that's really what this rests on is this idea that we can do that. And I think that's really where the idealism rests is in not acknowledging that there is no option where drugs are gone from the earth. So the options we're left with are how do we want to handle drugs that are going to always be with us? Right. Are we going to handle them in the way that makes the least amount of harm? Or are we going to handle them in a way where we just say, nope, I'm going to stick my flag in the ground here at absolutely gone from the earth. And no matter what price we have to pay, I'm willing to pay it. That's what we've been doing. And we're paying a high price in terms of human life lost, human life destroyed, families destroyed, communities destabilized, skyrocketing crime. Um, And that's, I think, we have to pull that flag up and say, okay, that kind of idealism hasn't worked and can't work um we need to instead say how can we actually make the world better even a world where potentially harmful substances exist right right so that's the end of our uh podcast today thanks so much for um joining us i'm going to read a letter by a um mother who wrote this in a, a local newspaper here in mississippi um because she's talking about kind of the way that she has thought about um, how do we preserve life? Uh, how do we help um, more people stay alive? Um, and her, her son has struggled with heroin addiction for a long time. So I want to read this. She has given permission for us um, to share this. Christy says, it was Christmas time when I got the call. My son, who was addicted to drugs, had been missing for a few weeks. I slept with scrubs laid out and my phone in my hand. Then the ringing in the middle of the night. He was in the ER. Is he alive was the only thing I could say. The nurse on the line responded, for now. 
When I got there, I was told it was a heroin overdose. A car had pulled into the hospital parking lot. His limp body was pushed out, and they drove off. The doctors and nurses worked on my son right there in the parking lot. They did everything that heroes do, and they saved his life. But the person driving that car also saved his life and should be protected from prosecution. Mississippi has a good Samaritan law, and its intention is to make sure that people who call emergency services seeking to prevent an overdose death don't get charged with a crime themselves. However, the law is limited and only applies in certain circumstances. For instance, if the individual overdosing has three grams of controlled substance, they would be protected. But if they had four grams, they could be prosecuted. Expanding the provision to apply to all situations where an individual is overdosing and emergency services are called in good faith will help save lives. It wasn't until I saw my beautiful blue-eyed boy alive in that hospital bed that my head cleared enough to understand why people were asking about the car and who was driving. Some of them assumed I would want the driver to answer for his overdose, to be punished if they were using drugs too. I don't. I see the person driving that car as a hero, just like I see the doctors and nurses who brought my boy back to me. That driver could have dropped him off anywhere. It would have been safer for them to avoid being seen, to leave him somewhere deserted. I might never have known what happened to my son. His life could have ended that night as a nameless and faceless addict. But addicted people are our children, our siblings, our family. They're all loved by someone, and someone else's child chose to take him to the doctors and nurses who could save him, even if it cost them their own freedom. We intuitively understand that Good Samaritans at car accidents should be protected. They tried to help. They did the right things. This is common sense. And even if the accident ends tragically in death, would the Good Samaritan be at fault? No. But we still have a gap in protection for the tragedy of drug overdose. For the scared young lady who sees her friend passed out, not breathing, we should encourage her to seek help. Right now, she isn't just afraid of her friend possibly dying in front of her. She's also afraid of prosecution. If she picks up the phone and calls for help anyway, is she any less of a good Samaritan? No, she is a hero to her friend's mother. Trust me. We need to expand our good Samaritan law because life doesn't always go as planned. The law should protect people who try to do the right thing and save a life. Calling for help should always be safe. And that's the end of Christie's letter. That goes back to what we've been talking about, about are we really going to stick this um, flag in the ground of just absolute, um, we can't move uh, in any way to help save lives, and instead shift to how can we save lives and how can we help um, people to thrive. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. We'll be back again with another um, episode. You can always email us at podcast at enditforgood.com with your thoughts, comments, questions, stories. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host, Mike Madison, and we hope you'll continue to join us as we continue the journey to end this criminal approach to drugs for good. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.